We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Third and six. Robinson in the backfield. Powell out of the gun. Presser steps out to the left. He's got some room. Going to use his legs. Said how. Gets the first down and out of bounds. That was the third play from scrimmage the other night in the preseason opening win over Cleveland. A third and six scramble to move the chains by quarterback Sam Howell. I think it was his most impressive play of the night, and I will explain why I think that coming up here in a moment. Uh, One guest on the show today, Al Galdi, is going to be on with us. Haven't had Galdi on in a while. We'll get his thoughts on the game Friday night and maybe get to a little bit of Nats talk as well as the Nats completed the series sweep of the Oakland A's yesterday, rallying for six runs in the bottom of the ninth. Nats are really, I think, very much an overachieving team this year. Uh, So maybe we'll fit some of that in with Galdi as well. The show today brought to you by our good friends from MyBookie. Football is back and so is winning season at MyBookie. NFL college football and a brand new cash out system give you options to bet and win all season long. First two legs of your parlay hit, cash out early and use the funds on another bet or let it ride for the chance at a bigger payday. Use early cash outs as a tool to stay in control of the action at MyBookie. To get started, go to mybookie.ag now. Register for an account free of charge. When you're ready to make your first deposit, use my promo code KevinDC to grab a welcome bonus on the house. That's Kevin DC to claim your deposit bonus and for a limited time, a free chip to use in the MyBookie casino. Bet anything, anytime, anywhere, only with MyBookie. And as I've said to you many times, they offer the best point spreads, the best pricing. Uh, This is the place where if you are interested in betting this upcoming football season, sign up with an account at MyBookie. So, Um, I did have a chance to go back and watch – I didn't watch the whole game again. No, I did not do that. Um, But I did go back and watch the three offensive series again, and I watched a couple of defensive plays from, you know, the starters. And uh, so my recap 
late Friday night, early Saturday morning, has been amended a little bit. Um, and I'll explain coming up here in a moment. Um, let me just mention, if you didn't listen to my post-game wrap on early, early Saturday morning, Jahan Dotson uh, joined the show uh, live from the locker room, uh, and he was great. By the way, he mentioned a player that he thought was going to be a big contributor this year. And I think we've talked about him a little bit, but I'm going to play that soundbite for you uh, later on uh, in the show. Uh, But um, I, first of all, I, I said this on Friday night, I was impressed with the quarterback play. I was impressed even more so with the receivers and the running backs. I think Washington has a stable of playmakers that is, you know, upper tier of the NFL. Like, I don't know where it would rank. I haven't given it a lot of thought. But, you know, it's not crazy to say that their combination of receivers, running backs, and tight ends, which is, you know, kind of the question mark area, is top third in the league. I mean, the duo of McLaurin and Dotson alone is a top third of the league wide receiver one and wide receiver two. And I don't even know which one you would designate as one versus two. I am a big fan of Jahan Dotson. Most of you know that. I think Jahan Dotson has a chance to lead this team in receptions and yards and touchdowns this year. And this time next year, we're talking about really a a, a dynamic duo that the league knows about. I like their running backs. I'm clearly in the minority on this. I liked it with B-Rob, Brian Robinson Jr., and I'm a big Antonio Gibson fan. And by the way, I thought Gibson uh, had a run the other night, which was a physical run. I don't think he gets enough credit for being pretty effective between the tackles. I'm not going to say that he's better than Robinson Jr., and I may say at some point he's not even better than Rodriguez, Chris Rodriguez, their sixth-round pick from Kentucky, but he's fine in that role. Um, He's better in space. But we've seen him be a pounded out between the tackle back and pretty and be pretty effective. Um, so there are a couple of things that I'm going to amend to my post game after watching. But I wanted to mention really quickly that the third and six run by Sam Howell I think may have been my favorite play from Sam Howell all night. Um, the reason being uh, kind of threefold. One is that this was the series in which they faced the Cleveland. Starters Now, Cleveland did not have their best players playing in the game, unless Deshaun Watson is one of their best players, and he might be. He was super impressive in that one drive. Um, but, the, you know, you didn't face Miles Garrett. You didn't face Nick Chubb the other night. You didn't face Grant Delpit. You didn't face Denzel Ward on defense. I mean, they didn't have their full allotment of star players playing even when their ones were out there. But that series was the series in which Cleveland played as many starters as they would play all night long. So one of the reasons I loved it is it was against you know players that are going to play in the NFL. That third drive may have been against some players who are not going to be in the NFL, although many of those players will be backups for the Browns in the NFL. The second reason I really like this play is that I don't think he had a lot. Now, um... The all-22s for the preseason games, uh, I'll comment on that at another time, but it wasn't like there was something quick that was there. I also don't believe there was a pocket to step uh, up into. So 
I don't think that there were a lot of options on the play for Sam. Um, And then thirdly, I just thought he was poised and decisive. And we saw Taylor Heineke make plays with his legs, not as many as I would have liked. But, you know, in watching him, you know, get out of the pocket, flush left, and understand almost immediately, this is the right decision because even though I can keep my eyes down the field, which he did to a certain extent, and maybe make a play, why do that when I can move the sticks with my legs right now? I can get six yards. I can probably get seven or eight. You know, on that scramble, and I've said this before, and I don't know why um, Sam Darnold keeps popping into my mind. Um, I think it's because of number 14. Also, he looks a little bit like Andy Dalton, who's who's worn number 14. Um, but he uh, he has that build that isn't sleek. It's more kind of boxy. And that's who he reminds me of. He reminds me of a Jets Sam Darnold. Now, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, Sam Darnold, I, I've, I've kind of been a fan of, but I also recognize he's probably not going to be an elite quarterback um, in this league. I still think he is a borderline starter in the league, and I've always liked Andy Dalton, using another comparison there. Dalton's not as um, the same build. But I loved the fact that against their starters or some of their starters – there wasn't a lot there, and he was super decisive, and he moved the sticks. I liked the touchdown pass to Jahan Dotson. I loved the fourth and three conversion to Cole Turner, but uh, that came against backup players and, in some cases, players that may not even be in the league uh, a month from now. Uh, I liked how, in a true dropback situation, third and six, and let's hope they don't have a lot of dropback situations. I'm not sounding the alarm bell yet on the offensive line after a preseason game. I'm not doing that, but um, I have a feeling that too many third and longs are not going to be healthy for this team. They're not healthy for any team, uh, but uh, you want to see an effective first and second down offense this year. Your third downs you'd like to see uh, in the third and one to third and four range, which you know keeps run uh, as an option and makes a defense, puts a, a, the defense in a, in a bit of conflict. Pure dropback. What you saw with that play is you saw a guy that made it look easy, uh, and he's going to need to do that, I think, a lot this year, and I thought that that was encouraging. All right, so... Let me just amend a couple of things from my post game the other night where, you know, the things that I liked were the receivers and running backs, Sam Howell, uh, Jacoby Brissett. I really thought Brissett looked really – Brissett's a big dude. You know, Jacoby Brissett is a big, strapping guy. You know, he looks different in the pocket than Sam Howell. Um, I think that Jacoby Brissett is an outstanding NFL backup. I think Jacoby Brissett can start in this league for several teams. Not a lot of teams, but several teams. And I do think that Jacoby Brissett, had he been on this team last year for 17 games, that they would have found a way to win one more and be in the postseason. Um, Also on my good list the other night was just, I love the way the defense kind of flies around. I think that's just sort of a hallmark and has been of Jack Del Rio's defenses. I think they are – they play fast, they play aggressively, they hit. Um, but what I'm going to amend here is a couple of things. Um, the O-line pass protection, 
It was primarily Wiley's two holds and Wiley in particular. I actually thought Sam Cosme uh, and the interior held up. Now, Nick Gates on a screen, the screen that was third and forever or second and forever, the second and forever, which created a minus two, which created third and 30. And then Antonio Gibson, I think, caught a pass and picked up some yardage. Um, Gates was a little bit, uh, you know, uh, he struggled to get out there a little bit. I, it's going to be interesting that that position in particular, Gates's position. I know they want a true veteran center um, on this team, which is why they went out and signed Gates. And they like versatility, obviously, with their offensive line as well. Um, but, you know, the guy that actually played okay last year in place of uh, Chase Ruye. Um, was Tyler Larson, and you know he's back and healthy. Um, but I, I don't know. I think Gates is definitely going to be the starting center. Uh, I just thought that the line overall maybe wasn't as bad as I had described it in watching it. Um, I loved the run uh, that started off that final drive. It was the last play of the the first quarter. Um, there was some good quickness, good athleticism. Uh, and I didn't think Chris Paul uh, played that poorly. Um, and I kind of ripped the entire offensive line. I think it was more Wiley more than anything else, you know, uh, that that was uh, a bit of an issue. Now, I did count the dropbacks, and I said seven to eight dropbacks he was pressured. It was probably more like six of of the 12 drop, dropbacks. There, there was legitimate pressure. And, you know, the sack that he took, I actually think was probably more on Sam. I do think he had uh, a receiver. And that's another thing that I want to talk about a little bit. I don't know the answer to this, uh, but I, and maybe we won't know until we start watching regular season games and you hear coaches talk about it. Uh, but they left free rushers a couple of times. Something I think the Chiefs never felt uncomfortable doing. You know, they weren't going to go max protect for Patrick Mahomes. You know, Patrick Mahomes' responsibility was always the free rusher. Whether he made a miss and extended a play or whether it was really more about, okay, there is going to be a free rusher, the ball's got to come out right away. If that's on Sam, then that sack was on him for not getting it out. I do think that that pass to Gibson out of the backfield that got deflected on a third down that I think would have resulted in a big play, a first down for sure, maybe more, and Sam had it deflected by the free rusher off the edge. Uh, Sam's, you know, Sam's height, I wish more than anything else, things that we know about, I wish Sam Howe were 6'3 and not closer to 6 feet, which is what he, he appears to be. But whatever. He's got a big arm. We know he's mobile. Decision-making, you know, understanding the offense, communication, all that stuff will become important. But um, I think it's going to be interesting to see if that is part of the offense. You know, Patrick Mahomes can account for a free rusher with quick release or with play extension. I mean, we see it happen all the time. I mean, how many plays is there pressure and all of a sudden it turns into a big play because it's Mahomes, because it's Kelsey on the other end or Tariq Hill before that. Um, I wonder what I, I, I'm not sure what I was watching the other night with on those couple of occasions where there was obviously an unblocked rusher. I don't know if it was intentional and that's going to be part of what they do, or they're going to scheme around it when the season begins and they're going to block it up and give him the time that hopefully 
uh, he can to be in the pocket and deliver a strike to receivers that are, I think are going to get open. Um, so that was kind of another observation along with the offensive line. I didn't think was nearly, um, as bad. Um, you know, that just the, the idea of how offensively this will work. And I, and I do think first and second down offense and getting the ball out quickly and on time. I mean, they have some really tough covers in Terry, in Jahan, in Curtis, in, you know, I think even a Cole Turner. The Logan Thomas injury bothering me a little bit just because it seems to be nagging and lingering. Um, somebody on Twitter compared it to the Curtis Samuel injury of his first year here. You know, it was always, ah, we're just resting him. You know, it, it, it'll be fine. And then it wasn't fine for the entirety of that season. But, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was kind of one amendment to uh, the initial thoughts on the game uh, Friday night and um, and sat- or early Saturday morning. The other one was this. Uh, it's specific to uh, the defense, the starting defense. Deshaun Watson, I think, was really good. And, man, I'm a big, big uh, DTR fan, Dorian uh, Thompson-Robinson. I think that he was drafted too late. We'll see. I think he's going to win that backup job from Josh Dobbs. Um, DTR can flat out play in two preseason games. Preseason, understood. Okay, Uh, completely understand what's going on here. Um, But uh, he was 9 of 10 the other night for 102 yards. Also rushed, by the way, uh, for uh, double-digit yards. And in that first preseason game, the Hall of Fame game against the Jets, he was 8 for 11 for 82 yards and a touchdown uh, and rushed for 36 yards in that game. Um, I just liked him whenever I watched him at UCLA. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. Uh, the de- the starting defense got punched around a little bit, and I'm not concerned because they're not game planning for Cleveland, and I thought Deshaun Watson made a bunch of plays. And the truth is there was an opportunity for a sack from Chase Young, and that was the other observation I didn't make Friday night that I wanted to make. And that is um, that uh, Chase Young looked explosive. I, I, it's, it was only four plays. That could have been a sack. It wasn't a sack. By the way, it was against Jedrick Wills, just so everybody understands, because a lot of you tweeted me and said he beat, you know, a first-round pick, a big-time lineman in Wills. I mean, Wills has been a disappointment in Cleveland. He was the 10th overall pick. That was a mistake. Tristan Wirfs is what Cleveland wishes they had taken at number 10 overall. It's kind of like what the Philadelphia people say about Jalen Rager when Justin Jefferson went the pick after. Uh, Jedrick Wills has been a disappointment as the Cleveland uh, Browns uh, left tackle uh, since they took him in that 2020 draft at number 10 overall. Eight picks, by the way, after Chase Young was was picked. But, man, I saw a guy that looked Chase Young-esque, powerful, quick, explosive. And if he's developing more around that pass rush and he's disciplined within the scheme – you know, I know he got a stinger, and you know, Ron said that everything's fine. I, I have no reason not to believe him, but um, Chase Young, man, that is God. Can you imagine how good they could be defensively if he turns in to a wrecking uh, defensive end pass rusher? Uh, hope all is well with him. Phil Mathis out early, you know, in that game as well. I mean, 
Second-round pick, Phil Mathis. He's got to be healthy, but it doesn't sound like there's anything serious. A couple of players got injured at practice today. Uh, Sam Cosme was out. St. Juice was out a little bit, but nothing major doesn't appear. The other observation that I didn't make Friday night that I wanted to add to um, is this. The communication, remember, between Biennemi and Sam Howell and Sam Howell and the huddle, uh, everything seemed to go well in their first chance. Remember, these preseason games are a chance for Eric Bieniemy to get into a rhythm as a play caller from the sideline as well, and I think that's going to be a big deal. I didn't mention this the other night. Um, no real issues. Now, I you know the play clock got down to one or two a couple of times, I think, but n- for the most part, they were on time, uh, and that part of it you know worked well. Um, so... That's important to these coaches. It's important for them to be, uh, you know, in sync on September 10th. You know, and that's the last thing I would just say for all of the all of you that reached out to me after the game and talked about certain things that you're very concerned about or, or certain things you're very excited about. I had, I had a caller this morning that just said they're going to the playoffs. This is obvious. Well, nothing's obvious for me. Uh, in these games. I just think that these games are total head fakes. Like, they're mirages. Um, I just, I'm not buying into anything other than the individual evaluation and hoping that nobody gets hurt. Like, I'm excited about what Chase Young did on the play in which he got a stinger, but I also recognize that Jedrick Wills, despite his draft status, has been a disappointment at left tackle uh, for Cleveland. Like, he's not terrible, um, but he's not, you know, Tristan Wirfs who's made a couple of Pro Bowls at this point uh, already. Um, But I just don't see the preseason games being predictors of the regular season. They're just not. They're important for the players. They're important for the coaches to kind of validate or invalidate what they've seen in practice or what they saw on tape, which got those players to, uh, to Washington. But other than that, I just don't. I don't think I even need to say this to most of you. These games are not a predictor of what's going to happen in the regular season. I still think we learn more from listening to coaches and players talk about themselves and other players than we do from watching these players. Uh, Two things real quickly to add. I don't know why Kendall Fuller didn't play in the game. I still don't know because I don't think Ron answered that today. Did he? Uh, I could be wrong. Maybe he did answer that today. I'm going to look for that real quickly to see. Um, if there's anything on Kendall Fuller and why, I don't think, no, I don't think, uh, anything on Kendall Fuller. Uh, I'm guessing veteran player hour and 16 minute delay. They didn't really need to see him. They've got a lot of depth in the secondary. They've got a lot of depth in the secondary. I'm impressed by some of the talent. You know, one of the other things I didn't talk about, I talked about Percy Butler and I talked about Christian Holmes on Friday night. Percy Butler can run, man. He can just flat out fly. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just, I'm not, oh, the other thing was, um, I talked about, thank God the the game didn't go to overtime. I even asked Jahan Dotson, you know, how would you have felt if the game went to overtime? He's like, I'm glad it didn't. Well, they don't play overtime in the preseason. In 2021, they eliminated they eliminated overtime uh, from the preseason, which was smart. Um, and so um, even though they went for the two-point conversion and the game could have ended in a tie, um, we saw, and I mentioned this on Friday's show, Kevin Stefanski chose 
losing the game over kicking an onside kick and potentially injuring somebody. All right, uh, Al Galdi next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This segment of the show is brought to you by the Circa Million and the Circa Survivor Pool. You're running out of days to enter the two biggest contests in Vegas. The Circa Million, $6 million in guaranteed prizes, a million to the winner, five games each week against the spread. Uh, they'll pay out the top 100. And then the Circa Survivor Pool, $8 million in guaranteed to the winner or winners. Typical Survivor Pool, pick one team straight up, no spread every week to win. Uh, and as long as you keep uh, picking winners, uh, $8 million is a possibility. Now, you do have to register in person like I did at the Circus Sportsbook in Nevada, but you can make weekly picks from anywhere. $14 million in guaranteed prizes, no rake. Uh, if the entries go above the guarantee, all the extra money goes in to the prize pools. Entries available until September 9th, 2 p.m. That is the day before the first full Sunday of the regular season. Uh, my guest is my friend Al Galdi from the Al Galdi podcast. You can get his podcast anywhere you get uh, a podcast, including the same places you get mine. He also is the co-host of the Nats Chad podcast. And now that I'm thinking about it, I actually mentioned it on the radio show today because I was talking about how the Nats have been doing. Actually, I, I didn't intend on starting here. Uh, Galdi's got a Nats chat podcast with Mark Zuckerman. And um, I am a bigger baseball fan than I think most of my listening audience believes that I am. But it's usually, you know, September, October. And if the Nats are really good. Real quickly, I mean, don't you think this is a very much an overachieving season by the Nats? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think... The best thing that you could have said about this season at the beginning of the season is it expedites the timeline for the rebuild. Like, it makes you think that the rebuild is going to pay off sooner than you previously thought. And right now, I don't know how you don't think that. I mean, the Nats now are two wins away from their win total of all of last season. The team has won 15 of its last 23 games. The team has gone from having not swept a series of at least three games since June of 2021 to now having authored a three-game sweep in three of the last four weekends. And 
not all of the sweeps have been of like bad teams. Like yes, the Oakland A's are horrible, but Cincinnati. the Nats a few weeks ago swept the San Francisco Giants. Yes, swept the three game series at Cincinnati. So the Nats are beating some good teams. The farm system is in much better shape. You know, it's a funny deal because there still are like bigger picture questions with this team, like the ownership situation and is the team actually getting back to drafting and developing players well. But if you're a Nats fan, I don't know how you don't feel appreciably better about things now as compared to just a few months ago. So who gets credit for this? Because, you know, at this rate, it's, you know, they're probably going to win 70 games, you know, um, which is going to be, you know, significantly more than they won uh, a year ago. And I say that it could be, it could end up being more. They've got 43 left, but I think I figured out basically, you know, going 17 and 26, the the rest of the way, you know, puts them, uh, you know, at that 70 number. Who would get the most credit for that, Davey or Mike Rizzo or both? Well, I think they both get credit because you are seeing these young players get better and uh, and or do well. Like this season, you look at like Josiah Gray and Mackenzie Gore. Now they've kind of faltered a little bit lately. But all things considered, those guys this season have done a lot of things well, and Gray in particular has had a big-time step-forward season. So I think you have to give Davey and his coaching staff at least some of the credit for that. But, you know, when you look at, you know, Gore and Gray and C.J. Abrams and Kbert Ruiz and these guys in the minors, you know, Mike Rizzo got a lot of these guys via the fire sales of 2021 and 2022. It's a weird deal because the reason that this team had to rebuild was that the team was really bad for a really long time at drafting and developing players. That falls on Mike Rizzo, but Rizzo has kind of done this uh, like Ernie Grunfeld-esque thing of he hasn't drafted well, but he has traded well, and he sort of has, has cleaned up the mess that the bad drafting created. And so these trades of you know Max Scherzer and Trey Turner and a bunch of other guys in 21 and the Juan Soto trade of last year have replenished this organization with a lot of premier young talent. Now, they're not all going to work out, but that really is the foundation of the rebuild. But that's why I say we still don't know if the drafting has gotten better. You know, this team is in this position, basically, because it cashed in a bunch of trade chips like Max Scherzer and Trey right. Turner and Juan Soto, etc. So it's kind of an odd deal in that regard. But I think you definitely have to give Mike credit for, at the very least, at least right now, you say, well, he picked the right prospects to trade for. Um, and, you know, that in conjunction with some really high picks in recent years, you know, like this Dylan Cruz pick. I mean, Cruz already is killing it for the low end. He had a two-homer game the other day. I think he was the Carolina, uh, whatever that league is, he was the player of the week. Hit like yeah. 430 Carolina or something like that. Yeah, he, he went, he, he on Sunday got on base six times. He went five for five with two homers in the walk. So, wow. Yeah, like you, it, 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 it's such an unusual situation because usually when a team falls off the way the Nats fell off, everyone gets fired. The GM gets fired, the manager gets fired, and it is a new regime that leads you out of the darkness. In this case, nobody got fired, and it might be the previous regime that ends up bearing the fruits of the rebuild that is so unusual in sports forget about baseball like in what other circumstances in sports do you see this and yet you might have this here you know because of this unique dynamic of the team being up for sale and the team having just won a world series a few years ago and the learners doing things the way that they do things and so it, it is a very unusual circumstance Five for five, a walk, two home runs, four runs scored, and six RBIs for Dylan Cruz on Sunday yeah. for single A Fredericksburg. Holy Christ. I mean, 
Um, yeah, well, look, I mean, I- I've talked to you about this. I've talked to Zuckerman. I had Mike Rizzo actually on the podcast a, f- a few weeks ago and asked him about it. I don't know that any franchise could have had worse luck in the last five years, or because of the pandemic anyway, than the Nationals had. Um, first World Series, you know, since 1924, uh, and you know, you can't even sell tickets to games. You can't even celebrate it in proper fashion. And so the huge revenue bump that comes with winning a World Series, especially for the first time, um, they weren't able to take advantage of. And it, in many ways, is the reason that they ended up being in the position they were in, which was having to deal players at trade deadlines, big players, um, because, um, you know, the learners aren't going aren't gonna to take a lot of money out of their own pocket uh, to pay for some of these players. But it's, it seems like, like here's the, the exit question, if you will. What year do you think they'll be ready to contend? I know that a lot of people, and I think you and Mark have talked about this before, which is could the Nats be next year's version of this year's Cincinnati Reds? I know they don't have a superstar or a budding superstar like the Reds do, but could could they make that big of a jump next year? Yeah, I think they could. And, you know, they could have a superstar at the major league level next year. I think Dylan Cruz could yep. be playing for them at the major league level next season. Right. So, yeah, I, I think absolutely the Nats next season could be the Reds of this year. I, I think the Nats next season could be the Orioles of last season, a team that takes like a really big step forward in terms of the win total and is in, say, wild card contention deep in the season. So, no doubt. I mean, I think at the end of last season, you felt like the absolute earliest that the Nats could be even decent again was 2025. Now you say to yourself, okay, 2024 might be that season. And, you know, let's see how this season plays out. The Nats might end up with a win total, you know, like you said, in the 70s. I mean, avoiding 100 losses was considered an achievement coming into this season. This team has a shot to avoid 90 losses now, which is remarkable given where things were not that long ago. They're going to absolutely annihilate the the season win total, uh, which was 58 and a half. Um, Denton looked it up this morning for me. 58 and a half. It was them and the A's at the bottom. Now, the A's are are not going to go over uh, the total. Um, And uh, the Nats are. All right. Well, I did not intend on starting uh, uh, the conversation uh, about baseball. So let's get to what most of the people that are listening to want to hear us talk about, and that is the football team. So give me your two or three biggest takeaways from Friday night. I thought Sam Howell looked good. Uh, I liked what we saw. I think, you know, you attach all the usual caveats of, you know, preseason game, no game planning, small sample size, yada, yada. But I thought what we saw was good. And uh, I would expect within the next week or so an official, official declaration of him uh, as a starting quarterback. And, uh, you know, away we'll go. But I, I think the uh, upcoming joint practices with the Ravens and then the actual preseason game with the Ravens are kind of the, the peak of the preseason. And I think you get through those things, and if Sam does okay or better than okay and isn't injured, then I, I think we'll get that official stamp on him, uh, I would assume, you know, early to mid-next week. So that, that to me, was the biggest thing. I thought Jacoby Brissett played well uh, as well. Um, and, you know, I, I think I saw what everyone else saw, which was an offensive line that early in the game was really overmatched and 
you know, it's especially worrisome given that Miles Garrett didn't even play in the game, and you know the offensive line had all kinds of issues. You know, it wasn't just the two Andrew Wiley penalties. You had Charles Leno getting blown up on the first offensive play of the game. You had Nick Gates getting blown up on the screen to Brian Robinson for minus two yards. But you know, again, it's one game. I don't think you like need to go nuts with any of this stuff. But, you know, with the offensive line in particular, like, I think we all had concerns coming into this season, given what we saw last year, given, you know, the offseason. Like, yes, the team did a lot with the offensive line in the offseason, but was enough done? Were the right moves made? You know, I think those are two legitimate questions. I think those questions remain. And, you know, I had to laugh with the defense, because what we saw with the Browns' first offensive drive, I feel like we have seen that so many times the last few years under Jack Del Rio, where the defense, especially early in a game, gives stuff up. There is this tendency for the defense to do that. But at the same time, the defense ends up, you know, bending but not breaking. We've seen that play out a lot. I don't know why that is. But, you know, you had this, like, ridiculous juxtaposition of the defense getting carved up for so much of that drive. And then those final two plays were great. That goal line stand uh, was tremendous. So, um, you know, you sort of take all that in. I mean, there, 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 it was a mixed bag, but I, I did think that there was more good than bad on Friday night. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, Cleveland carved them up in that game on New Year's Day. Uh, three straight touchdown drives to start the second half was, um, you know, totaling 170 yards or whatever it was. I actually, it's funny because, you know, we watch these games and we are very focused on you know, the individual matchups of the team we are talking about, which in this case is Washington. And yet, for me, my notes at the end of the first quarter were, wow, Deshaun Watson in that first drive. If they, if he plays like Deshaun Watson, like Cleveland and Washington are similar in the same way to me the Jets in Washington were similar last year. It's like they actually have good rosters. They have good defensive players. They have good skill position players. Quarterback was the problem. Although really for Cleveland last year, even with Brissett, it wasn't the issue. Their defense was inconsistent. But Cleveland with good quarterback play or outstanding quarterback play, man, the AFC, I mean the quarterbacks in the AFC, Al, the, 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 the teams that have a chance with elite quarterbacks – to really make a run, Cleveland's actually one of those teams if Deshaun Watson is the Deshaun Watson at his height that we saw in Houston. And I thought he looked really comfortable the other night. Yeah, he did look a lot better, no doubt. It's amazing, man. I mean, we've all followed the NFL for a long time. Has there ever been this big of a discrepancy in terms of the caliber of quarterback in one conference versus the other? I mean, this really is something which you have in the AFC right now versus what you have in the NFC right now. And, you know, I think that's part of, you know, with our team, like if our guy is just decent, you know, like Sam doesn't have to be great if he's just decent. And this team has not had at least decent quarterback play uh, since uh, you-know-who was the starting quarterback. So if you can get at least if you can get at least that from the guy, that can be good enough for this team to make the postseason this year. Like you're not competing with the Herberts and the Mahomeses and the Allens in the NFC it's a time unlike any that I can remember in the NFC in terms of what you have at quarterback right now. I mean, you could easily create a top 10 list of the quarterbacks in the NFL right now and have one NFC quarterback in it, and it would be yeah. Jalen Hurts. Now, 
you know who would be awfully close <laughs> to number 10, um, which makes him, by the way, I think number two in the NFC. And I know some people want to make Dak Prescott, you know, and Jalen Hurts ahead, and maybe even Jared Goff ahead of you know who. Uh, by the way, speaking of you know who, did you watch Netflix, the quarterback uh, uh, documentary? So I haven't watched it yet. Oh, I know ow. I'm like way behind on that. I know. I, I want to watch it, though. Because our guy gets <laughs> immortalized in that, which I just love. And I know that that eats away at so many people. Oh, my God. You know who was the star of the show. <laughs> and and you know who you just said was immortalized. It's amazing how many people, when I talked about this, reached out to me to say, you know, your boy, you know who? I feel totally different about him than I used to. Um, Anyway, you should watch it. Uh, I I can't wait. Yeah, I actually really believe I. I'm. uh, You know me. I don't. You know I think that we don't know anything, and that you know the the boys in the desert know a lot more than we do. Um, And it's not always the case, obviously, because occasionally they're wrong. I just can't believe that Washington is sitting there at six at, as a six and a half over under number. I just think they're better than that. I I felt that way last year that they were better than the seven and a half number. It all comes down to you know how even more so than the offensive line. Um, but I man, their skill position players just are. I think they're outstanding. I think they are better than that. I am like you, though. I've seen that, and I've said to myself, okay, what am I missing here? Because we know that Vegas doesn't just randomly come up with these over-under win totals. And so I've tried to say, all right, make the case for this team having, you know, six and a half wins or less. And, you know, I I guess the thinking would be, so the schedule does set up to be harder than last season's schedule. So I think in a lot of ways you start with that. Clearly there is a distrust of, you know, Sam Howell and the offensive line. And, you know, there also is this thing with the defense of, I mean, I think we all see the potential for the defense to be great. But, you know, it's been a weird deal, right? If you look at Washington the last few years, 2019, awful defense, 2020, good defense, 2021, bad defense, 2022, good defense. It's been this ping-ponging back and forth of good, bad, good, bad. And just when you think that the defense has arrived or is at least poised to be good, like we thought going into 21, you get surprised. I think we're in a new era now in the NFL in which, Defense has never been more unpredictable. It's never been less reliable. It is such an offensive league now. Even the good defenses give stuff up that if your biggest strength is your defense, I don't think that means what it used to mean. Because even if you have a quote-unquote good defense, that defense is still going to give stuff up. That's the way that the league is now. And so especially if you don't have a good offense or at least a trustworthy offense, it's hard to have faith in a team you know, having a good season. And I would think that that's kind of the perception here. Like, the defense might be good, but the defense might still have games in which it gives up, you know, 28, 31, 34 points. Like, you're going to have to score. Is this team capable of doing that? You know, I don't think you're wrong to have questions about that. No, I don't either. And we're not going to know until we see real games. Um, I, I do, I, I, and I'm trying to think of who the person I had on from PFF to discuss sort of the the unpredictability, as you just described, of defense year to year, that it's less reliable to, uh, to, to be um, what it was the year before. And the reasons for that, look, bottom line is if you've got good players and they're well coached, as long as they stay healthy, 
there's no reason that there should be a regression or a significant difference other than opponent. Um, and in 2021, they faced murderer's row in terms of quarterbacks and dynamic offenses that they faced. Uh, and they don't see anything like that this year, although they see a, a, a slight upgrade over what they uh, faced last year, at least on paper as it, you know, as, as we, as we speak now, I, I just think it's more than that though, that I feel like six and a half is low. I think that even the other night, and I talked a lot about it once again in the open, um, in that is Jahan Dotson and, you know, I, I think their receivers and their running backs are really, really upper tier in the league. Uh, and we're not sure about the tight end situation. I'm actually a little bit concerned about Logan Thomas missing all these practices, but let's just say Cole, it is Cole Turner, big target. They have really good weapons and they're going to employ a system that is, you know, West coast style, heavy on RPO more likely than not. Um, which makes the, you know, the offensive line pass protection thing a little bit less, uh, significant if you're not dropping the quarterback uh, back, uh, you know, as much as perhaps they did last year, even even in play action. I don't know. I just think that they've got too many playmakers to suck on offense. Yeah, I think the receivers certainly are good. I think the running backs could be good. I mean, if you look at a lot of the advanced stuff, the running backs did not grade out well last year, but the run blocking uh, left some things to be desired. So right. I, I think with better run blocking, the running backs can look better. And also, you know, we have to remember, Brian Robinson Jr. was coming off having been shot multiple times last year. And he himself admitted a few weeks ago he never felt right last season. So I, I think it's fair to say, hey, how about we see what this guy looks like when he hasn't just been shot, you know? So, you know, that's something to keep in mind. I'm also excited about this. I, I think Sam Howell this season has the chance to have the most productive rushing season for a Washington quarterback uh, since Robert in 2012. You know, we had Taylor Heineke the last few years. For whatever reason, he was never exploited as a runner the way that he could have been. Uh, Alex Smith, of course, had a reputation for running, but, you know, we got him. He was older, and then, of course, he had uh, the horrendous injury. So you think about, like, when's the last time the team had a real true run thread that the team was you know, willing to exploit in terms of the quarterback position. I think you could have that with Sam Howell. You know, he's got not necessarily like blazing speed, but I think he's a smart runner. I think he can be evasive. I think we've seen that in the limited time that we've watched him play. He's sturdy. You know, he can take a hit. If, uh, you know, you watched him in his final season at Carolina, he had one of actually the more productive rushing seasons that uh, a Power 5 conference quarterback has had over the last, say, 10 to 15 years. So, you know, I think that that's something that really could be a benefit to the team this coming season, and I think it could be a real weapon for them this coming season. I do, too. Um, I what's, I went back a couple of weeks ago, and I watched the Dallas game again. I mean, I watched every single offensive snap. And I was actually um, – because I had had various people on the show talking about Sam Howell, um, including Phil Longo, the offensive coordinator at, at North Carolina for a few years. And he didn't see Sam as necessarily a dual-threat quarterback, which is kind of the way I thought about him. Um, and I, and I, uh, he saw him as, as a guy that can certainly extend plays and use his legs and to really hurt defenses, but not necessarily in a Jalen Hurts role or you know a Justin Fields uh, role or... 
um, you know, uh, you know, from from 2012, you know, an RG3 or, you know, a Russell Wilson from those years. And I was surprised at that. But when I went back and looked at it, he isn't um, he's not a, an elite runner. He is an effective runner. I think that's what you said. And I totally agree with that. He's also a physical runner, which you don't necessarily want at the NFL level. Um, now, I like the way he got out of bounds. And we saw a couple of plays last year where he slid. He knows how to slide. You know, he's an all-around athlete, um, but he's not Lamar Jackson. He's not Justin Fields. He's not Jalen Hurts. He's not. He's not that level. With that said, uh, he. I, I still think, like you do, they've got to use him in the run game because we know what we know how using the quarterback in the run game affects the rest of the run game, and also how it affects sort of pass rush um, and pass protection. So we'll see. Uh, where are you on Eric Bieniemy right now? I know we've had a conversation about this before, but with the comments last week from Ron, um, which you know I called incredibly unnecessary and an, a major sort of unforced uh, error on his part, um, what's your gut after one preseason game, after some of the reaction to that on Bieniemy? Well, I'm excited about what Bieniemy can do. I, I think you know, like we were talking about with the Nationals earlier. This is such a unique situation because, you know, you have this like mutual using going on where, you know, Ron is using Eric to save Ron's job as head coach. Eric is using Ron in this predicament to get himself a head coaching job. So, you know, like if, if this goes the way that we want it to go, Eric won't be here next season, or at least he won't be in the same position here next season. So, you know, that, that's always kind of an odd dynamic to begin with. I thought what happened last week, and I'm with you, I think most people think this, like why Ron had to put that out there, I think is uh, a little strange. You know, I, I think it's worth keeping this in mind. He got asked about it, so I think it's worth wondering uh, the uh, people who asked him about it, I think Nikki asked him about it, um, I, I, you know, she probably had gotten some intel on it. So, you know, you do wonder, well, who gave her that intel? Like, who's, who's feeding this to the media that players had had concerns about the enemy? Did that come from the players? Did that come from the enemy? Did that come from Ron? Um, you know, but I, I think that's worth keeping in mind. Like, Ron wasn't asked that out of the blue. Uh, there's a reason that he was asked that. So I think that's something to wonder well, about. He, but I, you know, I, I, think- I disagree with you on that front. He wasn't asked that. He he. Well, but let me let me just say this. He was not asked whether or not players came to him uh, to express concern or. Ex- no, but he got asked about the adjustment. He got asked about it in a way that opened that door. I don't think she. I think it was a follow up to the earlier question, which, by the way, he gave pretty much a benign answer, if not a positive answer. I actually I thought about immediately. Did Nikki? Did she have some information about this? I. I, th- I think I disagree with you. I don't think she had any thought, and I think Ron offered it up free of charge. He offered up the fact that players came to him. The question was whether or not you know players have ad- have struggled to adapt to a yeah. to an Eric Bieniemy style, not whether or not players had come to Ron to express frustration. Right, but I think I don't I don't know that it had to be that she knew that they had come to him, although she may have known that. But when you ask, have they struggled with that? I don't think that that came out of the blue. And I, I don't think John she Kime said. Is, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, Kime has brought this up too that players have had uh, some issues with this. And so I think this may have been lurking uh, with some people. You know, I, I could be wrong, but I, that, that was the sense I got from that exchange and also uh, what has been out there. So, but whatever the case, Ron did not have to 
uh, reveal what he revealed. And he does have this thing of, you know, kind of talking too much and he can't help himself. So, but, but the other thing is this. So I've seen the conspiracy theory of Ron put that out there to make Eric the enemy look bad. Like, I know that that's a theory. I don't necessarily buy that, but I know that people have said that. But what I think is so funny about it is I don't think what he said made the enemy look bad. I think it made the, look, the players look bad. I, I think it made the players look soft. I think the overwhelming reaction, especially from fans, was anti-player on that. You know, like, here's a team with an offense that hasn't been good in years, and these guys are complaining about a coach who's, you know, working them too hard and is too demanding and is too uh, wanting of attention to detail. So, you know, I, I think it made the players look bad. And um, so, you know, and that was kind of what stuck with me. I thought the enemy handled himself exceptionally well in his presser later that day. You know, that was kind of a funny thing, too. He had a, a previously scheduled post-practice press conference that morning, hadn't spoken to reporters officially all of training camp, and then the day ends up becoming this referendum on his coaching style. Like, the day should have been about, hey, how's Sam Howell doing? How's the offensive line doing? And instead, he had to answer questions for 10-plus minutes about his coaching style. I'm, I'm sure he wasn't thrilled about that, but I thought uh, that he handled the questions well. So, you know, look, you can move on from this. I'm glad that he coaches the way that he coaches. It guarantees nothing for the offense this coming season. Like, we don't know if it's going to be good or not. But I think that, I mean, if I would have said to you at the end of last season with the way that things went down with Scott Turner, you're going to go from Scott Turner to Eric Bieniemy running this team's offense. I think most people would have signed up for that. I know I would have. Yeah, and I'm not going to sit here and, and beat the dead horse I've beaten for a while. Um I just didn't feel that way after I watched what, you know, kind of he went through, which was zero teams being interested in him other than Washington. It's funny. I was listening to um, the NFL Network on radio uh, on my drive back to Jersey uh, and was listening to this uh, interview with Todd Bowles, and I didn't realize that, that basically they've hired a new offensive coordinator. He interviewed six to seven people, Todd Bowles did. Um, before deciding on, um, oh God, I'm blanking on his name now, um, the guy they hired, and did not interview, uh, did not interview Eric Bieniemy. I don't want to make a big deal. I've, I've I've talked about this so much. Look, if you had told me this time last year or in the middle of the season, Eric Bieniemy is going to be your offensive coordinator next year, yeah. And by the way, I I don't have a problem with the move that they made. It's just like other moves that this organization has made in recent years, it's on my mind that they were the only team interested. That's all. I mean, that's just a yeah, that's fact. Fair. Um, that's fair. And, I mean, yeah. he's, he's 0 for 16 on head coaching jobs. Dave like, Canales. Dave Canales is the guy that um, Bulls hired to replace, I guess, Leftwich, right? Um, and he you know, was talking about how he, hired, he literally interviewed six to seven people, and he's ripping off names, and they were all so impressive – why didn't he interview Eric Bieniemy, Todd Bowles, um, and uh, but anyway, um, yeah, I, I uh, whatever. Ron created a mess. I, 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 I think Ron. I think there was. A, I think there's been a lot that's been on Ron's mind. Um, I think. I think Jason Wright's been on Ron's mind. I think Jason Wright doing that interview with Jason Reed probably was not something that Ron or a lot of people were were thrilled at, you know, him building up Eric Bieniemy into being almost head coach worthy right now. There's a lot, you know, it's like with with all the great news and in all of the great news so trumps 
all of the other stuff that happened last week. So we talk about a trade we would have made a year ago. Hey, you're going to have Ron step all over himself in a in a presser. There's going to be some issues between Ron and the team president, and who knows, maybe even Ron and the offensive coordinator that he just hired. But Dan's going to be gone. Uh, yes, we will take that um, every yeah. day of the week uh, and twice on Sunday. Um, Terry McLaurin or Jahan Dotson? Who leads the team this year in receptions and who leads the team this year in yards, assuming they both play the same amount of games? Uh, I would guess Terry leads in receptions and yards. I know you didn't ask this, but I would say Jahan leads in touchdowns. But I do think that it is a conversation of, like, let's say a year from now, two years from now, who do you view as the best receiver on the team? And it's not a shot at Terry, but, you know, it does feel like this team really has something special in Jahan Dodson. And, you know, to go back to, you know, back in the day, Art Monk, Gary Clark, like, I think the perception from the outside is Art Monk was the number one. But for those who were around for those years, you know, you could argue that Gary Clark was a superior receiver. Like, I don't think you're wrong to say either one. They were different receivers. But, like, you had two really great receivers in those two guys. And, you know, I think you could have that with Terry and Jahan. Uh, you know, they're different than uh, Gary and Art were. But I think you get the idea. I-, I think it's awesome what they have. I mean, Jahan Dodson, just as, like, a pure route runner, already seems to be at, like, this supreme advanced level. We know that he can run. We know that he has good hands. Uh, it's awesome to see what they have in that guy. And, you know, the more we are removed from them trading down in the first round of the 2022 draft. And, you know, again, you attach the, uh, the caveat of, you know, you got to let it play out. we got to see what happens in a few years. But them turning their first-round pick in 2022 into Jahan Dodson and Brian Robinson Jr. and Sam Howell and Cole Turner. Look, we might laugh at all that in a few years. I get that. But it's also possible that we look back at that and say, wow, <laughs> that was some trade. Uh, and right now, you know, them trading down and still getting Jahan Dodson uh, looks pretty good. Yeah, and at the same time, Alave was pretty damn good in New Orleans last year without, you know, much quarterback play either. Like, he was an outstanding player, and it looks like he's going to be a big-time player uh, for the Saints as well. That's the player that the Saints traded up to take. But sure, if it ends up being four really good players – uh, one of which at wide receiver is equal to, if not better, and you got three other guys, including, well, it, it'll come down to the starting quarterback for sure. Um, all right, one last thing that I wanted to ask you about, because you and I were talking a little bit about this before we started to record this interview. So um, our good friend Sabah has uh, pestered me. Sorry, Sabah, but that's the verb I'm going to use to get the people from NAGA, the Native American Guardians Association, on the show. And I'm, I'm not resistant to it necessarily. I just think that we're into this mode now of the ownership's changed. I've made my position clear. I think they're going to change the name a year from now. I don't think it's going to be to the Redskins, but I, I think the chances of Redskins is greater than it was before Josh Harris and company came in, I just don't think the league's going to allow them to do it. I think there would be too much corporate pressure and revenue pressure uh, against doing it. 
But Sabah keeps pestering me and telling me you had this group on your show. So I'm going to ask you, were they impressive? What did you think of them? And then where do you think we are right now on the name issue? Yeah, so July 13th was the three-year anniversary of the team retiring the name Redskins. Right. And so, you know, we're in the middle of July, and there isn't a ton going on, and I thought that it would be an interesting thing uh, to bring on uh, some people from Naga, which I was familiar with, not overly familiar with, but, you know, I, I knew about the group. I'd seen uh, some of the stuff they'd had out there. So I said, all right, let me interview them, and, you know, I'll run the interview on July 13th. So that's what I did. It was episode... 609, I spoke with two people from the group, uh, one who is Native American. She was the uh, first presiding president of Naga, uh, Eunice Davidson, and then uh, another person who is not Native American but is a big fan of the team and is in charge of Naga's, uh, like, social media operations, this guy, Tony Andrews. And, you know, I had him on for, like, 30 minutes, and we had what I thought was, you know, a good conversation. I mean, it was a, a nice, civil, you know, fact-oriented conversation I made sure to have uh, Eunice acknowledge the opposing view because I was like, look, you're Native American. You like the name Redskins, but what do you have to say to those Native Americans who hate the name? Because there are Native Americans who hate the name. How many, you know, I think is what is up for debate, but, like, there clearly are some. And so, you know, we acknowledge the the other side, and uh, they were good, you know. And they, since coming on my show, have launched this online petition yeah. to go back to the name Redskins that, as of last check, was at 92,000 signatures. Now, you know, I don't know if that's going to lead to anything, but I don't think that that's nothing. Like, I think that there is something to that. Uh, another member of Naga, uh, Bill Diekman, was on Fox News with uh, Lawrence Jones over the weekend. So, you know, Naga is getting some attention. You know, I'm, I'm with you. Like, I think the likelihood of the name going back to Redskins is far-fetched. But I don't think that it's zero. Like, I think most people would have said, say, two months ago it was zero. I think now it's, I would put it, you know, at less than 10%. But, like, I don't think it's completely inconceivable. I think it's really interesting that at that uh, FedEx field presser for the Josh Harris group, all three of the owners who spoke, Harris, Mitchell, Rails, Magic Johnson, all said Redskins. I thought it was interesting that the following Friday, July 28th, Ron Rivera and a training camp presser when talking about Kevin Durant attending practice referred to him as a Washington Redskins slash commander fan. Like Ron could have said commanders fan, could have said Washington fan. Ron actually made it a point to say Redskins fan. So this usage of the word recently by people with the team, I think is notable. Does it mean anything? No, not necessarily, but you know, I don't think it's something that you just ignore. I also think this, if the word is so bad, how come these people using this word hasn't been like harpoon? Like, where's the outrage? <laughs> because over it's that? So, not, because for the majority, we think, and maybe the significant majority, it's not. I think the yeah. somebody else like, I, and I, I'm forgetting who it is now, but somebody sent me somebody's tweet, and I think it may be a national media member. Could have been. Um, that guy, Mike Freeman, who wrote about this recently. It's not the N-word, people. Anybody no. that thinks that is stupid. Like, stop it. It is much more nuanced than that. There are still a dozen Native American majority high schools in this country that have Redskins as their school nickname. Do you think there's one school in America that has the N-word as their school's nickname? Come on. Stop doing that. This is what uh, this is part of the problem is that when you 
um, when you're hyperbolic in your position, you become literally unbelievable. Like you can't, you, you lose credibility. I don't know. I don't want to uh, say it was Freeman if it wasn't Freeman. I know he wrote recently. No, it was, it was uh, I think it was Deadspin because I got sent that too. I okay. think Deadspin wrote that. I, it's just not. That's not what it is. Take that out. Okay. That's the, the, the R, the R word is not the N word. No one has ever, with any brain in their head, has ever suggested that the two are synonymous. They're not. Um, One is highly debatable, and the other one isn't. Now, the problem, of course, as you and I both know, because we've had these conversations together for years, is that there is... A mic drop moment for those that, you know, hate the name and have always wanted it changed. And it is defined in some dictionaries as either insensitive or as a slur. Um, And that may have been done, you know, inaccurately or it could be accurate or could have been accurate and it's no longer accurate, which is, you know, again, what they should be working on. But anyway, um, yeah, I so prediction time, I think a year from now. They have already come to a decision to change the name to whatever they're going to change it to. My preference, if it's not Redskins, would be Washington. Keep the brand Washington. And then they might need, you know, per the league, another year for it to become official, perhaps. I don't know. So maybe it's two more seasons as as the commanders. I don't know how the logistics of that will work. Um, That's my prediction. What's yours? Well, I think the group is absolutely open to changing the name. I think that has been made crystal clear. If I had to bet, I'd say the name does change. But I always come back to this. If you're not going back to Redskins, I don't think that there's some other name that you can go to that's going to generate some like universal approval. Okay. And while it might generate more approval than Commanders, I don't know that it's going to generate that much more. Like There just isn't a magic bullet for all of this. There never has been. There never will be. Like the most unifying name change would be to go back to Redskins, but as you know, as we've talked about, that uh, probably isn't going to happen. But again, I, you know, I wouldn't say never. I also would say this too, and I think that this more and more is being understood by people. The name didn't change because of like incessant protests or like overwhelming feeling from people in this country that the name needed to change. The name changed because of the ownership view. The name changed because Fred Smith played yeah. the ultimate trump card on right. Dan Snyder and took <clears throat> advantage of the social climate in the summer of That's 2020. Right. Fred Smith didn't all of a sudden find religion on the name and say, oh, yeah, it's such a terrible name. It needs to change. Like, Fred Smith delivered one of the lowest blows you could ever deliver, and Dan was, uh, in essence, backed into a corner and forced to capitulate. But it didn't change. You know, Magic Johnson, when he was on the Today Show with Craig Melvin, Craig Melvin, who's a Commander's fan, talked about, well, the name changed a few years ago off all these protests. And I was watching that, and I said to myself, no, that's not why the name changed. Like, you may think that the name needed to change, and that's fine. I think reasonable people can disagree on this. But the actual reason the name changed was because of the ownership situation, not because of this overwhelming pressure to change the name. And and I think it's important to keep that in mind. And more specifically, it was Dan essentially stiffing his minority shareholders on dividend payments that got them to start to look at the books, and then all of a sudden they had had it. I mean, they were already well on their way to, you know, wanting out from Dan to either, you know, buy him out or get bought out. But Fred Smith, 100% used that summer of 2020 and that social climate to, you know, uh, to, to, to feel comfortable coming out with the statement that he did, which was change the name or FedEx is out. And then PepsiCo, Bank of America, others followed because it was 
Um, very acceptable in the moment to do that. But you're right. It wasn't about this um, very progressive uh, and and very, by the way, smaller movement compared to those that actually wanted the name, but very loud for many years um, that pushed uh, this agenda. It was They had gotten past that really in 2016, to be honest with you. The Washington Post poll, um, which really was the slam dunk for – uh, the team and 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 all of those that didn't want the name to change, ninety percent, nine out of ten na- Native Americans polled, not you know people polled, uh, just overall people from uh, every uh, race, religion, and and uh, and color. Every single person uh, in that native in that poll was a Native American, and it was nine out of ten said no problem with it whatsoever. Yeah. And that had p- pretty much shut down the debate. By the way, you know this this. Um, Twitter account, Native American Guardians Association, at Guardians Native on Twitter. When they post a new updated total, if it matches up with an all-time favorite Redskin jersey number, they put that jersey number. I mentioned they, you know, when they hit 65,000, they had Dave Butts. When they, had, when they hit 72,000, they had Dexter Manley. Well, you said that they're almost at 92,000. I think they should go with Albert Hainsworth at, at 92. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, like, I'm thinking about it. Who else? Like the 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 number ninety twos. What other ninety two? I can't even think of another ninety two other than Hainsworth. Um, was Chris Nothing, Baker ninety two? Chris Baker, yeah. Chris Baker was ninety two. Yes, but so Chris, maybe you go with Big. Oh, uh, you know, you, know. you can't go with Chris Baker. Um, <laughs> that would be funny though if they put Big Al up there, especially recently with what he said about uh, our boy Cooley and D Hall yeah. and Clinton. I had Clinton on the show the other day. Clinton didn't really want to get into it at all, but you know, you talk to any well, of those but, players from that era, they all uh, have uh, real opinions about Albert, and they're not favorable other than to say, "Oh my God, what a freak of nature athlete he was, and could have been a great yeah. player." Well, the best story Cooley ever told me about Hainsworth was how they were in the gym and Hainsworth was working out with like forty pound dumbbells, dumbbells. like putting forth putting forth like the least amount of effort possible (laughs) given like, you know, who he was and what he was capable of doing. And that in a nutshell was uh, Albert Hainsworth. Yeah. Him calling any former Redskins player trash is like (laughs) that's one of the funniest things I've ever seen him actually doing that. He actually he described himself in that diatribe. Uh, it was himself, yeah, and he didn't yeah. even know it. But every one of his teammates was saying, "Yep, uh, that's exactly what you were." Um, all right. Uh, thanks for doing this, as always. I hope everything is well. Al's the best. Uh, his podcast, the Al Galdi podcast, get it wherever you get a podcast. Nat's chat podcast with Mark is excellent, and you can follow him on Twitter at Al Galdi. Did I forget anything? Uh, no, I think you got it all. So all thank right. you. I will talk to you soon. Al Galdi, everybody. Uh, One last thing to finish up with when we come back, uh, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. 
Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shay Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shay Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Dominic. Dominic Toretto, I live my life a quarter mile at a time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com This last segment of the show brought to you by our good friends at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street Northwest. Go to Shelley's if you're looking for the best cigar bar in town. But go to Shelley's too if you're looking for something really good on a lunch or a dinner menu. Uh, they've got really good food. And I've mentioned this before, but if, you know, the real smoky cigar bar bothers you, don't worry about it. That's not what Shelly's is. They've got great ventilation in that place, and it's a really nice spot and a nice part of town to walk in. Uh, and if you're by yourself, you're going to see somebody there. You're going to have conversations with people if you if you want it. Um, there's always an interesting group uh, in there, a very eclectic group uh, at Shelly's, uh, sometimes Tom uh, as well in addition to those that are truly eclectic. Uh, But uh, it's a great spot uh, for a cigar, for uh, a glass of wine, for a good cocktail, for a good beer. They've got a great beer menu. Um, Go to Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, Northwest. So, um, Jahan Dotson, I asked him the other night about, give me a player that you guys are excited about that maybe we're not thinking about that you think is going to make a significant contribution this year. Here's what he said. 
I think number two, De'Ami Brown. I think he's going to have a big contribution to our team. Um, he's, he's a great piece for our room, a guy who can really stretch the field uh, and get the ball down the field. And he, he has that great connection from college with Sam. I feel like he, he's going to have a big year. De'Ami Brown, uh, not a surprise uh, that Jahan Dotson would mention him. I think when Sam Howell got the QB1 label slapped on him, I think we all kind of connected the dots and said this should be a good thing for De'Ami Brown. They were teammates at North Carolina. But uh, an interesting thing about De'Ami Brown, this was a Scott Turner push. Scott Turner loved a few receivers in 2021, and they were going to draft a receiver in that, you know, either on night one or night two. Now, night one, they went with Jamin Davis instead of Elijah Moore or Kadarius Toney. I don't know where Toney was. I know that Scott Turner loved Elijah Moore, who you saw the other night with Cleveland. It did not work out for him with the Jets. He was picked early in the second round of that 2021 draft, so early on night two. I remember before night two throwing out uh, De'Ami Brown and Elijah Moore's names because I knew that Scott Turner liked both of them. Now, I didn't know if Scott Turner would get his way uh, they picked, remember, Sam Cosme in the second round, and then they picked Benjamin St. Juice with the, the with the first of two third-round picks, and then they picked De'Ami Brown. Scott Turner was super excited about De'Ami Brown. He really thought that De'Ami Brown not only was a great speed guy, but had size and was really good as a contested catch guy. And he really liked De'Ami Brown and thought, you know, with Fitzpatrick, if Ryan Fitzpatrick was the receiver. You know, this is a guy that Fitzpatrick's going to give a lot of chances to. And maybe if Fitzpatrick had been the quarterback in 2021, it would have been better for De'Ami Brown. De'Ami Brown, in his two seasons, has 17 catches and two touchdowns. And and both of those touchdowns, right, I think, were in the same game against Tennessee with Carson Wentz last year. Um, But De'Ami Brown is also an example of... And this is – I want to make sure that I give Ron Rivera and the current group there a lot of credit for some of the players that are on this roster. I mean, the drafting of Cameron Curl in 2020, the drafting of Antonio Gibson in 2020, um, the selection of Derek Forrest in 2021, John Bates, maybe De'Ami Brown, Benjamin St. Juice, Sam Cosme. Like, they've done a pretty good job, but the best players on this roster, unless Jahan Dotson develops into one right away, which I think is coming, um, were picked by the previous regime. You know, Jay Gruden, Kyle Smith, to a much lesser degree, Bruce Allen. I don't know. John Allen was somebody that Bruce Allen, I think, fell in love with. I think they all fell in love with with, uh, Deron Payne. Um, But... Now, if De'Ami Brown turns into something, he's also kind of not a previous regime, but a previous employee. He really pushed for him. I don't know what De'Ami Brown's going to be here in Washington. I do think their receiver situation is interesting. It's Terry, Jahan, and Curtis as your top three. I think De'Ami clearly is four. But, you know, it's possible that in a lot of their their three wide receiver sets, or even their three-by-ones, you'll have Brown, Dotson, and McLaurin with Dotson working kind of the slot with either size in the form of a tight end like Cole Turner or Logan Thomas, or maybe even somebody like Antonio Antonio Gibson. Um, so, uh, but who are, who comes after De'Ami Brown? Pringle had a catch the other night. Kemp had a catch that was actually challenged and overturned. Um, Dax Milne's interesting. Um, Dax Milne, Ben Standig says is having a great camp. Uh, but 
you know, Kaz Allen may be the guy that they really want to be the returner that may make him expendable. Somebody suggested to me today on radio, why don't they trade a receiver or a DB for an offensive lineman? They do have some depth at wide receiver and in the secondary. They really do. I guess it's possible that they could add, you know, an offensive lineman if somebody's got, you know, a surplus of offensive linemen. Uh, anyway, um, couple of pieces of news, by the way. Uh, Dalvin Cook signs a one-year deal with the New York Jets. All right, that according to Adam Schefter, a deal worth up to $8.6 million. Zeke Elliott signs a one-year deal, according to Schefter, with the New England Patriots. Uh, $3 million base salary, up to $6 million if you count the incentives in that deal. And then the Cowboys did get Zach Martin's contract finally figured out. So the All-Pro guard um, has a deal that's going to pay him $18 million plus for each of the next two years, fully guaranteed. I think he was scheduled to make $14 million this year, something like that. Um, hell of a player there. So Dallas... Uh, is not going to get uh, Zeke Elliott back, uh, but they are going to have Zach Martin as part of that offensive line. Uh, by the way, the AP College Football Top 25 rankings are out. The AP, Maryland didn't even get a vote. Um, I'm surprised at that. They got 10 votes in the coaches poll, which came out last week. But Georgia, Michigan, Ohio State, Bama, LSU are your top five. Uh it's going to be an interesting college football season. And the last uh, college football season, uh, as we've known college football, with the leagues looking completely different, and then, of course, the playoff, season, uh, the playoff expansion starting in, 20, in the 2024 season. All right, that's it for the day. Back tomorrow.